My name's Connor. Uh, this is Sonny, and we're here with Ambrose from Dignity and Power Now, and we're going to talk about uh, incarceration in L.A. and other activism issues, as I understand it. We've been wanting to have you on this for a while, uh, since we talked about Justice L.A. and their push to uh, uh, change the uh, prison system in Los Angeles in 2019, as I understand it, uh, they had a uh, major victory. They uh, We got the county to uh, rescind, cancel their contract to expand it was Central It was about mm-hmm. $2 billion, uh, right? Th- over $3 billion, yeah. 3.5, yep. as, as they uh, uh, calculated it. Yep. And so uh, that money is now being directed towards uh, community policing and activism and other ways of uh, managing problem individuals. Well, Would that be a, 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 cu- a bad way to describe it? Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. a couple a couple different things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for, first off, our focus in LA are, are, is the jail system. So there's a couple different, you know, there's the jail system and then there's the prison system. So there's also, you know, a simultaneous movement going on that really targets the prison system where people go after they've been sentenced Mm-hmm. Uh, to, you know, sentence and the, their case is resolved. Uh, in L.A. County, the jail system houses both people who have been sentenced and people who have not been sentenced. And that's described as the pretrial population. So there has been no disposition on their case and often they're held in simply because they can't afford to pay bail. Right. And here in L.A. County, I think it's about 47.7. So almost 50% of the people in the jails here are are pre-trial. And the jail population is almost 14,000 people right now. So if you think about that, that's a little bit under 7,000 people have not been convicted of any crime. They're just being held. They're just being yeah. held. And they're being held in horrendous conditions in yes. the Men's Central Jail, as I understand it. And oh, yeah. They've trying to shut it down but that seems to be dragging out yeah well so going back to to the original framing that you had connor um the money that was going to build this extension of men's central jail ideally it would be directed into community care um you know we fight against community policing we're an abolitionist coalition and organization mm-hmm. and community policing is not the the answer um and also no one should be characterized as a problem individual to us there are so many reasons underlying reasons and root causes of what's described as criminality um and often those root causes are just you know People not having their basic needs met, food, housing, support for mental health issues, Mm -hmm. support for substance use issues. Um, So ideally, the money that would have gone to expand the jail should go to community-based care. And in 2020, I believe it was, the voters here in L.A. passed Measure J, where a percentage of the county's unrestricted funds the voters said that money needs to go to communities that have been historically underinvested in, uh, black and brown communities in LA, queer communities, um, business, small businesses. Um, and the issue now, and so ultimately that should have been over $900 million. Right. But 
of course, L.A. County is shady molasses and shady <laughs> yeah. molasses on implementation and, and totally shady. You know, so that money, some of that money from. So we're, we're almost three years out now from that right. vote. Mm-hmm. And this was passed by majority of L.A. County voters and some small organizations haven't even seen a single dollar of that money yet. Um, yeah. So there have been the voters multiple times in the last four years have said we need the county to hold the sheriff's department accountable. Measure A was passed this past November, which would amend the county charter to give the Board of Supervisors power to impeach a sitting sheriff. This is like post Villanueva. Um, and that was measure A. And then measure J was, uh, you know, three years before that, two years before that. And measure R was also related to investment in community services. Mm-hmm. And the voters have overwhelmingly said, let's hold the sheriff accountable and let's, you know, move money out of the carceral system into community-based care. It's now a matter of just getting the county to actually implement that. Is there any sort of, like, community oversight from that? Yes. And, like, uh, uh, yeah. transparency with that? Because that's my big concern with just handing people blank checks, essentially, is that a lot of it, mm. it can be... There will all, there will be people who want to take advantage and abuse it. Unfortunately, we have two ongoing themes on this show. Okay, it's, it, one of them was the causes of <laughs> violence and uh, community problems, okay. and I'm glad that you focused on the environment as the chief uh, cause of uh, people's difficulties in life. Um, and the other one is uh, why aren't these problems being fixed? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. that seems to be in part because of the sluggishness of the bureaucracy. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, because it's clear that people want this on Holly Mitchell's website, there it is. It's care first, jails last. Yeah. The slogan. Um, and uh, the other one is uh, where the money's going and the need to uh, have uh, control over that or some measure of power over that from the public's perspective. Yeah, I think that brings up a couple different things. You know, the county's not writing blank checks to anyone. Mm-hmm. Like, in order to receive money from the county through. W- what is formerly Measure J, now known as Care First Community Investment, mm-hmm. there are all of these hoops that organizations have to jump through. Like, nobody is just getting a blank check. In fact, actually, getting money and contracting with the county to be a service provider, to be receiving county money, it is just so prohibitive. Like, small organizations are basically written out of the county contracting equation because they don't have the infrastructure. Maybe they employ formerly incarcerated folks. And, you know, that's something that we as at Dignity and Power Now, we are specifically about uplifting and developing leadership of formerly incarcerated people and their families. And Dignity and Power Now, we have a lot of formerly incarcerated folks who lead the work um, in our organization. And to contract with the county, some county uh, contracting requirements basically say if you have a criminal record, we're not going to contract with you. So orgs that actually should need the money the most and should be wow. receiving the money. So just a criminal record regardless of what the crime was, even if it wasn't even violent. Poten- potentially, yes. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there is a oversight body that was created by the county called care first community investment advisory body Mm -hmm. cfci and this is a community advisory body but again you have to be appointed to this by either a board of supervisor 
or um, you know another county department, and this this body meets every other week and provides recommendations to the county on where this Measure J money should go. And so it is a collaborative process with this advisory body saying, okay, our priorities, permanent support of housing. Our next priority is harm reduction. Um, our next priority is mental health care. They, they parse this out and say this amount of money should go here. And then it's passed along to the, the CEO of LA County, um, Fizia Davenport. A lot of people don't know that LA County is a CEO. And the CEO actually is the one who signs the checks, you know, decides the budget. Mm-hmm. And what has happened is that the Care First Community Investment Advisory Body has provided recommendations to the county about where the Measure J money should go. And in some instances, the CEO has just shut that down, said, no, okay, you, you're recommending 50, 000, I mean, $50 million go to harm reduction and safe injection sites. Well, actually, we're not going to do that. We're going to give that $50 million to interim housing, which is great. Right. But where is the accountability there if the community advisory body is recommending right. this and then the CEO is just shutting that down? Then what's even the point of having right. community recommendations? No, I agree. Yeah. Like even if there's no there's no point, like you, you literally just said, there's no point in doing all that if they're just going to go, ah. Nah, like we know we asked you to do all these things and create recommendations for us, but we're just going to do it our way instead. Seems to be another instance of uh, mm-hmm. the dichotomy between public power and private individual power in the yeah. government. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there still is a point, though, and that's that to show where the system breaks down. Mm-hmm. So, like, these recommendations are created and then it actually reveals, okay, who is pulling, who actually has the power in this instance? The CEO's office, the board of supervisors. And so it it also is um, something that motivates community organizing because then people who have been involved in providing these recommendations, it's a public meeting so community members can also show up to have their voices heard around CFCI recommendations. these community members, when they see that the CEO has just vetoed all of the recommendations, they don't just say, okay, our job's done. In fact, actually, it's it's a rallying cry and, and a call to step into the work to hold the, the county accountable for their promises. That seems to be a key part of organizing public efforts for change is uh, directing community members to go to board meetings and have their voices heard. Uh, is, is that part of the uh, primary goals of Dignity and Power Now and how they exercise their power? Yeah, I think, so there's, Dignity and Power Now is an organization that anchors the larger, one of the anchor organizations for the Justice LA Coalition, which is a large coalition of know 60 different organizations and individuals who are focused um, and have a unified goal of abolition in LA County reclaiming money out of the carceral systems the sheriff's department the probation department the jails reinvesting that in communities well and also shutting down the jails and that gets to the the organization of these coalitions because that's not the only coalition that uh, dignity and power now is an anchor of right um yeah that that's true. We also uh, Dignity and Power now anchors a statewide coalition, Care First California. That's all about pre-trial uh, reform. And but going back to your question about the Board of Supervisors, so one thing that 
Justice LA has done since the beginning is showing up at county meetings, really specifically the Board of Supervisors, to exactly have have community members' voices heard. But this isn't just this isn't easy. You know, it's not not everyone has the confidence and capacity to show up in person at a board of supervisors meeting and provide public comment. It's really stressful for people. Mm -hmm. And so what Justice LA does is support people through the entire process. One, just learning about what who, what is the Board of Supervisors? Mm-hmm. Who do they have control over? Why is it important that we're there? Why is it important that we have our voices heard? And who are the individual Board of Supervisors? Who is your board representative? So we support people with that basic political education information before we even ask someone, hey, show up, go to the Board of Supervisors tomorrow and give public comment. Right. It's important for people to understand the structure that we're working against right now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that polyed focus is also supporting formerly incarcerated folks who have been inside of LA County jails to be the ones at the forefront of having their voices heard. You know, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of people have never given public comment before. So as I said, it's just a matter of supporting with some political education around the Board of Supervisors and their power. And then showing, okay, what does it look like to give public comment? What What is effective both in terms of getting your point across and having it be fulfilling for you during the process? Um, because some people just want to speak about advocacy and policy, and others want to tell their story about what they experienced um, by police violence. They've lost a family member inside of the jails. And we're there to support the crafting of those those comments. Um, and the Board of Supervisors right now, they do both virtual and in person. And it's really hard and designed to prohibit people who work full time from having their voice heard. So right now, the Board of Supervisors is meeting literally as we speak. And the meeting goes typically from 9.30 in the morning till past 4 p.m. in the afternoon. They have sometimes upwards of 50 agenda items. And each agenda item has public comment. So say you are interested in giving public comment around a motion that's related to tenants' rights. That motion, you may show up at 9.30. That motion may not be heard till 3 p.m. Who has capacity to take that entire day out of their work week to go sit at the Board of Supervisors to give comment. So what we also do is support people giving written comment. Uh, You can write down, you can write a letter, and we, through Justice LA and our virtual action network, will collect written comment from hundreds of people every single Board of Supervisors meeting and send that to the board. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah, no, for real. Getting more people involved with the, the, the Board of Supervisors is actually very important. So if somebody wanted to do this who was listening to this, mm-hmm. where would you direct yeah. them? Well, you could go to our website, JLA Now, or yeah, justicelanow.org. I should probably actually know the web URL off the top of my head. But we also you also can register for the Justice LA virtual actions. And um, maybe I can plug that at the end, if that's cool with you. Yeah, um, absolutely. We'll put I it in the just, show notes. I can plug a lot of links. The virtual actions are an incredible opportunity to get involved if it's your first time 
getting involved in, you know, municipal government ag- advocacy or it's like your seventh year. The virtual actions through Justice LA, mm-hmm. what it is, is we have them twice a week and people meet on Zoom if you want to join that part of it. You meet on Zoom to learn about what the action is. So, for example, today's action is giving public comment at the Board of Supervisors. So we have a group of people who are meeting who met at 9 a.m. this morning on Zoom And what they do is support each other in giving public comment. So you're on Zoom, you're hanging out with folks, you're, you know, supporting each other, saying, like, you can do this. You go over your public comments before you're called on. But yesterday we had a virtual action where people gather on Zoom to learn about, okay, these are the agenda items that we're going to be talking about tomorrow. Then we send out text messages. That group of people on Zoom send out text messages to a list about of about 1,400 people saying, will you take this action with us today? And the people on that text list have signed up for this. It's not like just a random you know, election text you get from Nancy Pelosi. Like this is something that you sign up for because you're interested in participating in this. And we send those texts twice a week and we'll say, do you want to take this action with us? It'll give a little bit of context and then it will direct you to Uh, a document, a Google Doc, you know, a letter template that you can use to take the action. And the actions range from Board of Supervisors comments to calling city council members directly to statewide stuff. So emailing state legislators um, to also very basic things like join us for a community meeting, sign up here. So We have a lot of actions, virtual actions, and our community partners ask us to sort of mobilize that infrastructure, and we do it twice a week. Do you think that uh, this uh, method of organizing has had an effect over the past few years? Oh, I mean, definitely. So we actually have, as I spoke about earlier, Measure A was passed in this past election, and we mobilized the virtual action infrastructure for weeks. So in order to get a measure on the ballot, the Board of Supervisors needs to approve it three times. So it comes up to a vote at the Board of Supervisors, three different board meetings. Then if it's passed, it can go onto the ballot and voters can vote. So we needed to push the board members to vote in favor of this so it could make it on the ballot. And we mobilized the virtual action team to send thousands of letters and make thousands of calls. And Janice Hahn, who is supervisor of uh, District 4, said explicitly in her comments on the floor of one of the board meetings that originally she was against Measure A and was not going to vote in favor of it. But it was the thousands of calls and emails and letters that she got that showed her what the community wanted, and ultimately she voted in favor of Measure That's A. interesting. Yeah. I, I might be wrong, but was she who voted against closing the Men's Central Jail because there was not a good uh, ulterior option uh, to house those uh, men's? I believe men? I believe that was Catherine Barger, actually Kath- okay. Barger, who's supervisor of District Five. Because mm-hmm. it, it seems like a you know a legitimate worry that uh, they there, there's no ulterior plan. Uh, to uh, change the uh, system there there's no option b there actually are there's option b there's option c there's option d so they're just expensive and no one wants to actually put the time into doing them but they're less expensive than maintaining the jails and Mm. paying the sheriff's department 3.4 billion dollars a year that's sheriff's department annual budget Mm mm-hmm 
That's the sheriff's department. I, I, I want to get into policing, um, but there's there's two other things we, we want to talk about. And one of them was this uh, more complicated method mm-hmm. of organizing relative to going out into the streets and protesting mm-hmm. en masse. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cynics over the past few years have, uh, you know, uh, critiqued Black Lives Matter uh, as both this movement and this organization and uh, accused the the founders of uh, embezzling funds. And uh, the question is what, what, uh, uh, what effects have these uh, mass protests had uh, towards uh, reforming policing and incarceration. Dignity and Power Now and, and the Justice LA Coalition, we're not about reforming policing. We're we're about abolishing mm-hmm. the police and sheriff's departments. And I do think here in LA County, even prior to the summer of 2020, um, there was deep movement organizing happening in LA County dating I mean since the 80 I mean as far back as I know like 80s 70s pre-watch riots yes yes and dignity and power now started I believe in 2012 as a result of people who were organizing after losing loved ones to sheriff violence and out of dignity and power now there there became or there came like i the check the sheriff coalition um and all of this was led by families who have experienced violence by the sheriff's department um and this created sort of a groundswell prior to 2020 and the contract to close or the contract to expand men's central jail the board voted to cancel that at their last meeting before lockdown. So the summer of 2020 hadn't happened yet. Yet it was the on-the-ground protesting and and the community advocacy that led to the cancellation of that contract. Also prior to the summer of 2020, the county established the Sheriff Civilian Oversight Commission, which, again, was the result of decades of advocacy and organizing led by these families. Um, led by family mer- members whose whose sons and brothers and sisters and moms were killed by the sheriff's department. And they advocated for a sheriff accountability body. And out of that came the Sheriff Civilian Oversight Commission. That was prior to the summer of 2020. So a lot of these things were in place before the summer of 2020 and, and, and the George Floyd, Floyd protests. And what I, I do think is that the protests nationwide brought spotlight onto the movement work that was already happening in communities, the movement work that was already happening in Minneapolis, in New York City, in Los Angeles, in Louisiana. Ideally, if you're going out and getting angry and uh, protesting with your compatriots, you're graduating to the next level of community organizing. Yeah, well, I think I don't even think it's the next level because there are, there are so many different ways to be involved in organizing and advocacy and fighting for the abolition of the carceral state and investment in communities. And so some people may just be more attuned and, and more equipped to be there protesting. Some people can't protest for 
many reasons, because they physically aren't able to. Maybe they they work and aren't able to make it. Um, And so doing many things at once, protesting and also doing, you know, direct advocacy through contacting, you know, government officials, departments, right, et cetera. Them accountable and actually making them do their job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then also <clears throat> base building and really meeting with community members, learning from the people who are affected by the systems the most, learning about what what's their priority and how can we work with them so they lead the movement. Um, and so there, there's all of these different ways to be involved and no one of them is you know, more courageous or um, admirable than the other. Why are you more for abolition as opposed to community policing? Oh, yeah. So, let's get into the yeah the, the, well, the effects of these protests and the goals. Yeah. Well, abolition is both. Uh, well, I should say, what yeah. is your definition of abolition? Because I've seen many different interpretations of it. And people get scared when they hear the term yeah. defund the police. For sure. For sure. Well, I don't think there's one fixed definition of abolition. Mm-hmm. I think that abolition, Angela Davis describes abolition as both a method and, and a practice and a vision. And so abolition is, one, living your life every day with the purpose of rooting out the structures of white supremacy, um, developing ways for community accountability that don't involve the carceral state, and bringing also decentering and up, sorry, not decentering, but uplifting the work of women of color, of black organizers who have really led this work historically. And why abolition and not reform? You can't reform something that is rotten to the core. You need to just throw that away. And nothing about policing or about the jail system or about the prison system works. And if mm-hmm. you like, what, what do you mean by work? By working, it's people use the excuse and justification for having jails and prisons. Oh, we need to, quote, reform people. We're all about rehabilitation. The thing is, is that none of that addresses why somebody maybe stole that backpack with a laptop in the first place. None, none of that does. And you, you go to jail and prison, that's, you're not going to then suddenly walk out of jail and prison with guaranteed basic income, food in your fridge, and care for your family. And those are often the root causes of why somebody did steal that backpack with a laptop because they need money. And we can't reform a sheriff's department and a police department. And here in LA County, the sheriff's department is run by deputy gangs, by by people, by deputy gangs, where their goal is to enact violence upon communities. Their initiation is you know, how many people inside of Men's Central Jail can you beat up? Like where, so, and the thing is, is when we talk about defunding the police, that's, that, uh, Miriam Cabas says defund the police is the the ground floor. It's like literally the, the lowest, it's the ground floor. It's not something that, you know, we need to think about 10 years from now. It is, it needs to be a foundation for all of this work because how, 
can you say that a county cares about community when L.A. County invests $3.4 billion a year in the sheriff's department and less than half of that in mental health care? Probably less than a third of that in permanent supportive housing, less than a million dollars in permanent supportive housing. So, and people are still suffering. Yeah, yeah. the the the, uh, the the cynic would say this is all very idealistic, but there are some people that are just going to commit crimes that are just bad. You you have to uh, take them away from society in some measure um, because there's no other way, and there would always be some small minority of people that you couldn't help and you needed jails for some purpose like that and that that's what police are there for well a couple things most people over 50 percent of the people in la county jails suffer from serious mental health needs so you know somebody who is having a schizophrenic episode and walking around with a knife what they need is not going to jail. No, they don't. You know, yeah. no. What what they need is round the clock clinical care and support for their mental health needs. And so that honestly addresses most people who are inside of the jails and a, a majority of people who are committing violent crimes. And the thing is, is that Police and policing does not make communities safer, period. We've seen this. And pouring more money into the sheriff's department is actually not going to support those individuals who are the most seriously mentally, those individuals who have the most serious mental health needs, who may be the ones committing the most violent crimes. Foucault would say that the the police are not there simply to make the community safer for those who uh, are in need of help, but to uh, uh, make the government's power uh, visible for the people who think that there are enemies in the public to them. Um, How can you convince those people uh, who want the police there for uh, the government's power uh, that they don't have enemies in the community? Well, I think, I mean, how, do I, how do we convince the, the folks that want police because they want to see government power on the day-to-day? Yeah, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the conservative critique of the police abolitionist movement mm-hmm. is that they hear from, this is in the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. and, and in uh, uh, conservative publications uh, like The Bulwark, They'd say, well, we go to these uh, uh, meetings where the public gets to have a roundtable with the police and ask them for more or less policing. And then over and over again, uh, the people that go to those meetings want more police in their communities. They want to see police on the corner. They want to feel protected. Well, most of the time, those folks haven't been offered an alternative. And so when all you know is oh, this cop will remove somebody who's threatening my family. That's, that's all you know, and you will continue to rely upon that structure. It's really important to introduce alternative structures of conflict resolution, um, alternative structures of addressing mental health needs, addressing houselessness, uh, addressing drug use. 
right now. And this is because, you know, since since Jim Crow, even before that, I mean, police departments, police came out of slave patrols. So the policing system is designed to maintain a structure of white supremacy, period. And a dominant ideology. Yes, and a, do- and a dominant ideology. And the the United States, both federally and then states themselves and counties, you know, have incentive to continue to invest in this department because it maintains certain structures of power and not provide any idea, vision of an alternative. Or an investment in the communities. Exactly. So, you know, if there's $300,000 that is invested in harm reduction, that's like a safe, safe injection sites. So people who are drug users, rather than using on the street and being exposed to potential overdose without any support, they can use in safe, safe injection centers. Okay, so imagine $300,000 is going to that instead of investing in the police department and a community is able to see, oh, wow, I don't have to administer Narcan, you know, once a month because we have now in we have now this new structure. I don't have to then rely on the police anymore. It's, I wanted I wanted yeah. to get to alternative structures mm-hmm. from the beginning, and so I tried to start with that. And one of them definitely is safe injection sites, mm-hmm. um, and uh, others are. Um, you know, I can't remember the names, but but basically uh, rehabilitative uh, projects that focus on keeping the people who would otherwise be incarcerated uh, within contact with their social networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's one of the big problems of taking people to jail is they're withdrawn from everything that would help them. Yes. Uh, so could you uh, talk about some of those alternatives as well, not just safe injection sites, but alternatives to incarceration? Definitely. Um, In fact, after L.A. County voted to cancel the expansion of Men's Central Jail in 2020, um, and this was also happening around the same time, is the county convened what was known as ATI, Alternatives to Incarceration Workgroup. It was a huge years-long effort that involved county departments, and community members to write a a plan. There's like an over over 100 step plan for alternatives to incarceration. Exactly what, what you were just talking about, which is an detailed, really, how many people do we need to develop this infrastructure? What type of money, what type of monetary investment is needed to develop this infrastructure? And And that stems all the way from prior to anyone being arrested to after somebody's being released. So this report, the ATI report, the Care First Jail's last report, addresses that entire spectrum of potential involvement in the criminal legal system. And so what those structures look like is, first off, how do we stop people from entering jail in the first place? Well, we need to think about in law enforcement. You know, if uh, a sheriff's deputy is arresting someone who's just sitting outside of the 7-Eleven for being disruptive and they have, you know, a small amount of drugs on them. Well, what if that was just a first of all, what if that person was never arrested or never um, 
cited in the first place. That would be ideal. That would be ideal. But say the law enforcement officer is going to cite someone. Well, let's think about cite and release where they're never actually taken to jail. They just have a mechanism by which they need to come to court uh, for their court appearance. But why the county is resistant to even starting there is they're afraid of people failing to show up to court. Well, what's the answer to that? Investing in the structures that get people to court. Alternative models like the bail project, they use community release with support, meaning somebody's bailed out, they are, you know, supported by their community, and the bail project will support them, getting them rides to their court appearance, reminding them when's your court date, um, providing them with job resources. Okay, so your court date is in two months. Until you have until you have to go to court, what are you going to do during that time? Let's support you with resume building, getting a job, you know, s- maintaining your job, getting a new job. So that's one example of a community release with support model that addresses the failure to appear Uh, which is a justification that the county uses to not expand site and release and not um, or and pursue holding people in on bail uh, during the pretrial phase. So that's one alternative model to incarceration. Don't keep people in jail during pretrial, release people in their community, but invest in these models that will support somebody both thriving in their community and then also getting to court if they need to get to court. And this is also like court reminders. So one thing that the Justice LA Coalition did that was really led by the Fund for Guaranteed Income, uh, another LA County organization, is create something called courtreminders.org. So if you have a court case going on or a family member has a court case going on, you can sign up for a text message reminder service that will also connect you with the public defender's office that will ask you, you know, what do you need to make it to court, and we can help get you there. If almost 50% of the people in the LA jail system right now are being held without trial, that's a, a, a gross constitutional violation, right? But, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, opponents of bail reform, or bail abolition, would cite one-off cases like uh, the guy in Minneapolis. Which uh, guy? Who uh, who drove through a crowd of people when he was uh, yeah. yeah they they would uh, cite those very uh, uh, extravagant and, and emotional uh, cases in which somebody out on bail uh, did something terrible. Um, how would you respond to that fear that someone who's arrested in some way is therefore dangerous? Well, I mean that it's total fear mongering, and it is. Those are one-off cases. So nobody talks about this this person, I guess, in Minneapolis. What kind of support were they receiving when they were released without bail? Was there any support? I mean, counties often don't have those structures themselves. And so hopefully this person was connected with a community-based organization that was providing them with potentially mutual aid for their families, connecting them with mental health resources. And so I think that if yet we are all about abolishing bail, you know, we are all about a presumption of release across the board. People should be released pre-trial. But you can't just end it there. There needs to be a simultaneous investment in the services that will support people during that time period. And so these articles about, you know, that one that one person 
where it they never cite the lack of supportive services that the county you know that the the county's failure to support an individual through what is most likely the most vulnerable time in their life mm-hmm. because when someone engages in taboo even if it's sitting on the corner of 7-Eleven with some drugs they're in some way communicating that they're alienated from society uh, and there needs to be some sort of uh, move to bring them back into the fold but not one that will simply uh, uh, extricate them from society or ostracize them well a couple things like I, I don't necessarily think that that's signaling you know that they're alienated from society and I do think that what is more alienating and then incarcerating a person like right. true truly there there there's and and people use that as a justification to continue to incarcerate people but you know if we're about supporting communities and supporting people being involved and integrated in their communities incarceration is definitely not the way to um you know invest in community building that's for sure um and i don't think that i think that there is a lack of of investment in other ways to be you know yeah, I, there's just a lack of investment in community, period. It's two would, wrongs don't make a right. Yeah, I would 100% agree. Like, there have been, I remember, I think it was watching a podcast reading up on a case of a guy who got falsely accused of murder, and he came out, he w- went to jail, I believe, in the early 2000s or the late 90s, and he came out in the early 20-teens and was having nervous breakdowns because of all the information and the technological advancements, and he really couldn't, like, he just couldn't deal with it. And he, like... Uh, I remember I think you remember him saying like he doesn't remember much of the first year or two years he was out because he was just operating off of like flight or flight and couldn't like had a hard time processing life as it was. So like I completely agree with you on the 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 idea that like jails don't jails and the prison systems don't actually like reform. They they're kind of just there to hold people and then there's also issues of like people being used almost as slaves within them as well. I Partially agree with you, but I also disagree on the, the abolition. I do think the, the state of police right now is not ideal, but law enforcement, having someone to enforce rules is necessary. The way it's being done now, I think we both can agree, is, is not nowhere close to being ideal whatsoever. There should for sure be programs to help people reset, uh, you know, actually reform so we don't have people people just being coming in and out of the prison system because that's all they know. I often accuse these guys of having a lack of imagination about uh, possible uh, alternatives to policing. Oh, uh, no, I would love, like, I think... But there's still this underlying need to have somebody there right. with a uniform and a Because I think, I think inevitably, largely, the things you're talking about, like environmental things, as opposed to why people commit these crimes. He brings it up all the time. And I think you are you guys are completely right about that, 100%. The people who are just born and grow up in f- situations, and that's all they know. So compared to the average day person, they're f- and they will do f- things or whatever. But, like, these people need attention and care so they can be more embraced by society. That I completely agree with. But there will almost always be at least some one person like that is just not they just want to do bad things. There's nothing there's almost nothing you can do about it, I feel like. 
So like that would be the reason why law enforcement would be there. But also you you can't just also have government gangs running around and just killing, right. murdering. Yeah, people. no, you can't have that either. So what what's the what's what's the middle ground? No, it, it's abolition or 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 nothing. Yeah. I mean, not or nothing, obviously, mm-hmm. but. One thing that the Justice LA Coalition, you know, always reiterates is that we're not going to support a policy that eventually we'll have to fight against, mm. you know, and like so so reformist policy is is just like that. And one thing you said, you know, definitely caught my attention. And that's that, you know, police enforce, quote, like the rules and you mean like the penal codes and, and laws. And the thing about penal codes is they are grounded in structures of white cis gender heteropatriarchy, mm-hmm. meaning that the laws are written to marginalize and criminalize queer people, black people, immigrants, um, poor people. And so if if one justification for maintaining police is, well, someone's got to be there to enforce the laws. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the the pushback against that is well, get rid of the laws. Oh, I would agree. You know, and so, I don't necessarily disagree with you with that at all. Crime is an ideological construct, and uh, you you could equally say that. I most... don't know if I agree with that, but there's for sure history of laws that they have horrible history and where they come from. And blah 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 blah. We could we, that's a whole discussion we could get into later. You could you could recontextualize it <clears throat> by saying that most crime is committed by police against and 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 uh, guards and prisons against the public and those in prisons mm. because that's the violence uh, it, that is uh, keeping people down. And if you were to aggregate- Oh, like a humanitarian the, the crisis. The physical violence mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in the world, you know, most of it would be, uh, have, uh, would be committed by uh, those in um, uh, some sort of power. Right, um, they're treating right. people in prisons like animals, but they're not. They're human right. beings. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I could, yeah. yeah. And also one thing, you know, you did you did say, Sonny, like, what about the one person that just wants to do bad things, you know? Well, again, why? Like, is it because they are bipolar and they just haven't received the mental health care they need? Like, also. Oh, no, I'm not saying they should not receive health care. Yeah, no, 100%. But, but, but one person or a handful of people should not be the reason why we continue to perpetuate a system that disenfranchises and enacts violence upon millions. I agree. Well, that's why I like yeah. that's why I'm more in favor of community policing because if you have people who are actually involved in the community and they genuinely know the people that are there, they have less incentive to just treat them like animal and they're like, "Oh, that's John from down the street. He's having a rough time. Let me go take him here so he can actually get rehabilitated." As opposed to just throw this random dude we don't know in a prison. Well, I think there's there are a lot of issues with community policing because, mm-hmm. you know, it's not entirely community. It's it's OK. One huge issue we see with community policing is the citizen app. You know, this. have you heard of citizen? I have not. No. Oh, gosh. This is no. End- do not go on citizen. It's no endorsement. But of citizen at all. Get I mean, this app needs to just die immediately. Because it's people who think there's some sort of these vigilantes of justice. Oh, gosh. Okay. You know, so, <laughs> but, but they say this is community policing. I see an unhoused neighbor 
just down the street from my house, somebody called in on the or some, put in on the Citizen app. I see somebody waving a knife next to the 101. Do you know what the response to that was? So first off, the the sheriff's department and LAPD are deep in the Citizen app, so they'll see this. They sent two SWAT vans, two helicopters. It was a six-hour standoff with somebody experiencing a mental health crisis that came from somebody thinking they're doing community policing. And so obviously that's like an extreme example, Mm -hmm. but we community policing, one, it also still says, it's also about enforcement, law enforcement. It's community policing. It's not called alternative crisis response or restorative justice in community setting it's called community policing which still centers the structure that is you know continuously surveilling and enacting violence upon communities on on the one hand there is uh, there is the uh, response to people who are engaging in some sort of taboo or need help in some other way uh, with a state social response um, and then there are the uh, uh, the uh, things we need to do to prevent people from getting into that situation in the first place, uh, addressing the problems that led to that personality disorder. Um, But people fall through the cracks. Those personality disorders do exist and develop as best we can, and we won't always be there to uh, prevent them from from happening. So at some level, there needs to be, I'm I'm arguing, the, are you arguing my, yeah. my point? Well, no. <laughs> some but some sort some place to put them, right? Not prison, right? I would agree. Right. You know, yeah. definitely not prison. We don't want like an at with Arkham Asylum. You know, like, or, people or, don't deserve that. Yeah, or a locked a mental health asylum. Like, what about what if again? And and I understand that his brother was the one that said, you know, no, don't don't release him. This guy's got narcissistic personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Sure, but again, has the brother been offered any other? vision for what care for his his incarcerated brother could look like like what if offer me that vision yeah what if once he was released on parole he was able to maintain a steady job and receive outpatient mental health care counseling seven days a week this individual gets as a condition of his parole but again i'm not about any supervising conditions i think that that's a whole another issue of once somebody is released, what does the the state's next form of incarceration of this person look like? Um, but if this person has a serious, you know, serious narcissistic personality disorder, they should be going to having having a count counseling, group therapy, individualized therapy, alternative modes of therapy. Like what else? What else is supporting this this man? You know, is he does he have in guaranteed basic income is he you know fighting to just make a dollar or is he able to you know have some sort of monetary base that he can go and get a job that he and rent an apartment and have a car so he can go and drive to his therapist appointment or be able to afford a metro car to get to his ther- therapist appointment you know maybe multiple chunks of therapy. He's in therapy Mm -hmm. in the morning, he gets lunch, he has group therapy in the afternoon. What is he doing at night? He's doing some sort of community service. Um, This is another, this is another vision, you know, but the thing is, is also, this was not introduced to this individual throughout the 
time period he's been incarcerated. You know, the, these these aspects of care are often only brought to an individual while they're incarcerated by other incarcerated individuals who are interested in creating community that isn't about, you know, violence and retribution and really is about caring for one another. And I see this with programs that we have at Dignity and Power Now, led by a colleague of mine, James Nelson, who was incarcerated on a life sentence for a murder he didn't commit. And um, once he got out, he and while he was inside, he organized with, in, you know, with people he was incarcerated with. Mm-hmm. And then once he got out, he's created this program called Forever Rooted, where if you have been released from jail or prison in California, you know, you get in touch with James and it's support groups that run, you know, weekly. And they've been doing this for over six years at this point. And so James saw an alternative, you know, and, and he saw what what care and community can do for people who are coming out of prison. And so, you know, potentially this guy with narcissistic personality disorder just hasn't been shown that there are ways of living in community and living with care and compassion as at the forefront um, because he's been inside potentially just exposed to violence and discrimination and white supremacy. I kind of agree with you for sure. Mental health care, 100%. Shouldn't be treated like animal in prison, 100%. But I don't... There's there's some aspect of the old maxim that if uh, if you don't want help, you can't be helped. Yeah, sure. I guess I I could I could vibe with that for sure. But I think there's there's for sure an issue of what will he do if he's not given these things properly and he's just let back out onto the streets. Obviously, you're not advocating for that either, not at all. And I don't want to try to make it seem like you are in any way whatsoever. I think him being in some sort of mental mental institution for not even like a year or whatever for X amount of weeks or months where he's given proper care and can get the things that he needs to make sure he isn't a threat to other people, I'm fine. That's there's some more ask- so how I would prefer it to be, not just, you know, there's- throwing him throwing this guy in prison because he there's, there's, a, there's a challenge in, in engineering <laughs> the environment around uh, uh somebody who's been released or would otherwise go to jail, uh, that they would choose to have. Um, that would be best for them. Uh, and that seems to be impossible at first glance. Like, how do you engineer an environment that is different for everybody uh, and yet uh, bureaucratically deployable? How do you quantify mental health? Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, the, the key to not incarcerating them uh, is to uh, have them choose the help that they get. Uh, to choose to live a better life and to offer them that choice. Um, and uh, if you can't envision the environment that would give them uh, the help they need and they can't either or else maybe they wouldn't be in that position, then what do you do with them? You know, That seems to be the problem that we have been trying to solve with prison uh, for the last 200 years. Well, I think... I think that prisons were designed to incarcerate the most marginalized members of society. Like there was no problem that prisons were trying to prisons were designed to solve. Like the problem 
is a threat to white supremacy and um, and capitalism. And based on the outcomes that the prisons have uh, given us. Ba- well, yeah. based on the prison industrial complex, yeah. um, you know, it was created and designed to main- maintain white supremacy and, and maintain capitalism and and um, and and period. Like, if actually the, a system was designed to to re- to address the problem, which is again underinvestment in humans and and people and communities, then if that was the problem that w- people were trying to solve the solution to that would not have been the prison industrial complex and you know i think we shouldn't get hung up on just a, a single person you know right. from from reddit whose brother was like yeah. don't release him right. you know because abolition is is about everyone including that guy you know and and um the there needs to be investment in these alternatives um, and then public attention on these alternatives so then people understand that that they are a choice. Um, yeah. We give them those options. Yes, uh, and, for sure. And, and everyone, those options. Everyone, us. yeah. And giving everyone the op- opportunity to become out a better person from just in general. Or just don't get, give everyone the opportunity to not get there in the first place. Because yeah. a lot of what is being uh, prosecuted is not a problem. No. I would agree with yeah. that, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of unnecessary litigious laws that just don't need to exist. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of enforcement of laws that just, there's a lot of laws, again, don't need to exist. And then there's enforcement of, gross enforcement of laws that just aren't necessary at all either. Uh, so we got that you went to, to law school and that uh, you focus on local politics. Get, how did you get interested in community? Were you just interested in community organizing and politics from a young age, and this was where you were going to go, where you're going to end up? Um, yes, I would say yes for sure. Um, my family has felt the impacts of incarceration personally. Um, my mother's side of the family, and my father was a public defender for 40-something years. And so I started learning about the system when I was, I mean, extremely young um, and and seeing how it tears apart families. And then I also learned from my father about, you know, well, he may at the at that time may not have described himself as an abolitionist, the way that he answered any question that I had certainly pointed in the direction of we need to not incarcerate people and we need to invest in the well-being of every single person. Um, and so I I think also it's interesting to, to think about young organizers because when I was growing up and in high school and even in early college, I didn't understand that there was a framework or term for what I was doing. So where I went to college, the way that uh, women were treated was almost as if we were in the 1950s. And um, there were just horrible statistics and and personal experiences of, of women at the university who, you know, were experiencing 
rampant sexual harassment and assault and we started doing consciousness raising around just feminism and around talking about sexual harassment and and assault and rape on on campus and at that time I didn't realize oh this is what this is organizing like and we had a a a campaign um and so I think I've always been organizing in some way or or another just just not labeling it that way and then um I went to law school and I at law school I clerked for the public defender's office and and um, then I did some policy work, which was fulfilling, but also I, I was organizing on the side, realizing, oh, actually, if I could just devote all my time to to organizing, abolitionist organizing, spending, you know, every all of my my um, capacity on really trying to break down the systems of mass incarceration. The thing about organizing and having a legal background is you're not having to work within the confines of the law. You know, public defenders, they are also incredible organizers. But here in L.A. County, like, the public defenders are so overworked and underinvested in, they don't have the time to spend on advocacy because they mm-hmm. have, you know, potentially 800 cases a year for one attorney. That is Wild. It's too much work. It's yeah, too much work. You can't work properly and do your job. Like you can't that. properly do your job, and so, and you're also working within the confines of the law, you know, and you don't have the time to try to change those laws because you are overworked. And so, having the position of an organizer is, I can fight to change the laws, and I also can support somebody going through the criminal legal process. While I'm not their attorney, I I can be their court support help translate what they're going through you know translate the court materials and and support them and their families as they're going through this while also then having the time to push back and try to change the laws i imagine that's very rewarding i mean i i don't know what like i just love being around people who share this um share this value system and so um and getting getting to connect with people it's definitely more fulfilling than sitting behind a desk we're gonna we're gonna be interviewing Holly Mitchell and George Gascon yeah. coming up. Cool. Uh, and and one other council member I can't remember. But uh, is there anything that you you, know, you really want to ask Holly Mitchell or Gascon for that matter? Well, I want I want to I actually want to thank Holly Mitchell. Holly Mitchell has been a champion for investing in alternatives to incarceration um and i i look to holly mitchell as like a a leader on the board of supervisors when it comes to actually implementing and like living by the care first jails last um agenda yeah for real so no questions just gratitude Mm. gratitude for holly mitchell i guess mm, okay if if i had the chance to ask holly mitchell a question directly it would be What's her plan to set a concrete date for the closure of Men's Central Jail? So uh, the county, the Board of Supervisors, has voted on multiple motions that say, yes, let's close Men's Central Jail. But they haven't given a timeline for it. And one of the demands from our coalition is that the board set a concrete timeline for jail closure and close Men's Central Jail by March 2025. 
So that's two years from now. And we want the county to commit to that timeline openly and publicly. Um, so my question probably Mitchell would be, when are you, you going to do that? Um, and when are you going to set the concrete date for jail closure? And for George Gascon, I have so many questions. You know, I think that it must be hard for him um, when faced with internal opposition in his office where George Gascon has come in with, I mean, is there any, is there any, is a, the the myth of a progressive prosecutor a real thing, to be honest? Like, is that is that real or is it just a myth? Um, but we know that George Gascon has faced internal opposition from prosecutors who think that he's being, quote, soft on crime. And I would just love to hear from him about his experiences if he can talk about it. You know, um, I'm sure that there are, you know, like regulations and restrictions of what he can talk about publicly. And also, I would love to know directly from him the impact that he saw of the emergency bail order. So here in L.A., from March 2020 until July 2022, the county implemented what's called the emergency bail order. Because of COVID, they wanted to reduce crowding inside of the jails. And so under the emergency bail order, people, most misdemeanors, you were released on your own recognizance. You were not held in on bail unless there was sort of a, a demonstrated justification of why you should be held in. And so this resulted in tens of thousands of people who would potentially have been held in were actually released. And I want to hear from Gascon, is he, has, did he see an impact of that? Did he see, quote, what media narratives have described as a, quote, rise in crime, even though there was no rise in crime? Um, you had Michael Moore, chief of the LAPD, during, I think it was, it was definitely 2021, if not 2022, saying publicly, oh, these smash and grabs, these retail thefts, this is a direct result of the emergency bail order. Not true. And so I want to I would love to hear from George Gascon, you know, what sort of impact um, the emergency bail order had on the way that his office was working. And, you know, we have on record from the office of the inspector general here in L.A. County that the so the jail population went up after the rescission of the emergency bail order. So we know that more people are in jail because the county rescinded this bail order. So I would love to hear from Gascon, like what policies the DA can take now that the emergency bail order is rescinded, what policies the DA can take to try to mimic the conditions of the emergency bail order in order to you know continue to sort of reduce the jail population because that is uh you know a, a general good it's just to have less people in prison especially in pretrial yes overall yeah, yeah. oh yeah. I mean, yeah. yes yes yeah. yeah i would agree with that yeah do you think the emergency relief thing was uh god i already forgot the name of it do you think it was ultimately a good thing oh it's a very yeah. good thing and mm -hmm. i actually think that the county should reinstate the emergency bail order for for many reasons you know COVID has not disappeared like we can't act like there's COVID is not around anymore. Well, the transmission rates are different than they were, you know, 2021. Um, COVID is still around and people in jails are getting COVID. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that I do think and also what we saw and we do need hard data for this. And it's actually really hard. This is about government transparency. It would be great if we could get this data. It's like how many people that were released on the emergency bail order then went on to be rearrested? You know, and right. so I think that the emergency bail order should be reinstated and should actually just be the bail policy of L.A. County. 
you know, one thing I was I was curious about was was how uh, Justice LA is is using uh, data, uh, especially mass data, in mm -hmm. its uh, policies, and how you think that data collection has affected uh, the uh, policing policies over the last uh, you know decade or so. So we use data. We use a lot of data, and and we're so grateful to coalition member orgs and partners who do the the real data science. I'm thinking of Million Dollar Hoods out of UCLA and the Vera Institute of Justice, their California work. They have an incredible thing called the Care First, Jails Last dashboard. Um, they both have an L.A. County specific one. And now just I think it was just last week, they launched a statewide one where you can look at any county in California and look at how many people are incarcerated in that county, both in jails and prisons, how many people are pretrial. What are the racial demographics? Um, so when you look at L.A. County, I have the numbers here. Right now, 54.7% of the people in L.A. County jails are Latinx. And this is relative. They're 48% of the general population. This statistic is wild. So 29% of people in L.A. County jails are black. They're, black people make up only 8% of L.A. County's population. So Some, to yeah. me, immediately that... That Something's represents, yeah, the yeah. over-policing of black communities in L.A. They are ar arrested at rates higher than their uh, representation in the general population. And so we use data every day to show the, you know, racial disparities in incarceration. Um, and we rely on big organizations that do do, like, intense data collection um, and robust data collection. So Vera's California dashboard you can look at, yeah, any county, see the, you can also see the opportunity cost. So for what cost, what it costs to incarcerate one person, the county, any county in California, and it, it breaks it down, you know, Tulare County could actually be spending, you know, $2,000 on guaranteed basic income per month. Some, so it shows the opportunity cost of incarceration as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, here in LA County, when we we need and when we rely on data related to arrests um, and related to law enforcement, it really community members are at such a disadvantage because the data is can, one um, uh, undertaken and and reported only by the sheriff's department and the police department. So when we're relying on ar arrest data and quote crime rates. That is coming directly from the sheriff's department and police department. The sheriff's and police department have a financial incentive to be reporting high instances of crime because they want their $3.9 million check every $3 billion check every year. Right. That's an issue with like them having quotas and whatnot. Yeah. And so when so the fact that we can really only rely upon they're they're the they're the county's controller of crime data and they also have a financial incentive like the data is going to be biased right um so that's how the the you know law enforcement data affects our work is the fact that we still have to rely on the data provided by the sheriff's department you know also if you want to Th this is their publicly reported data. If you want to get any other data, you're going to be filing public records requests to the sheriff's department, you know, ad nauseum. Honestly, it's like a fight to get any information. Um, and so something that we as a coalition have been advocating for 
around our jail closure campaign is public public reported data on the pretrial population, so publicly reported data on the emergency bail schedule impacts. So, you know, people, how many people were actually rearrested when they were released? Um, we also want data related to mental health beds. So one thing that we hear over and over again from the county is we can't close the jail because there's nowhere to put individuals who are experiencing mental health issues. And we have been fighting for data. How many mental health beds, so these are either community-based treatment beds, larger um, institution beds, how many, how many beds are available? Who's tracking the availability? Transparency. How much time and resources are you actually putting into helping those people? Right. And mm-hmm. also, you know, if, if we could even get that accounting from the police and sheriff's department, that would be amazing. What's an hour-by-hour day for a deputy? You know, because in L.A. County, over 40 cities in L.A. County, and we had a campaign in West Hollywood, over 40 cities in L.A. County contract with the sheriff's department to provide ser- services, meaning employees, deputies, vehicles. So West Hollywood spends over $21 million a year in their contract with the sheriff's department. That comes out to almost $400,000 for one deputy, for one deputy. Um, I believe it was in 2020 that the sheriff's department, this is this is a, a beautiful statistic, um, the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department, you know, with their $21 million a year contract, out of over 300 cell phones that were stolen, they retrieved two. So West Hollywood was paying $400,000 for a deputy to not do anything, you know. And what we did in West Hollywood was show, okay, we know that the sheriff's department is charging West Hollywood like I believe it was five million dollars around for quote and this is their wording homelessness outreach so as, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah no that's just picking right. them up and yeah. drop yeah. them off so somewhere. as part yeah. of their contract with West Hollywood that's how much the sheriff's department was charging for their homelessness outreach so we as a coalition said okay just cut the contract by that much money because we know they're not doing outreach and take that money and actually invest it in real outreach to unhoused communities. So we we tried to do that. Um, and we definitely got pushback because as soon as you say cut a contract with the sheriff's department, the, you know, defund the police sirens come on. And, right. you know, everyone's saying, well, this the defund police movement has come to West Hollywood. People are really upset. But we did <clears throat> we did encourage the West Hollywood City Council to cut 1.7 million dollars of their contract um, and invest in this other form of security which we definitely were not in support of which are block by block ambassadors um, you know unarmed but again to us that's actually just reproducing the security state because who are the block by block ambassadors going to ultimately call probably is the sheriff's department um, but so we tried to get data related to that you know what what is the instance of actually solving any sort of um, issue in West Hollywood such as stolen cell phones you know it took us doing a ton of public public records requests 
Um, we were trying to understand how does a West Hollywood sheriff's deputy spend his time so you can account for, okay, if you're paying somebody $400,000 a year, you know, paying the department $400,000 a year, their time should be accounted for, right? Like, and and that's data that we don't, we weren't able to get. We don't know because they don't have to, you know, clock in exactly what they're doing every hour. Um, mm, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I am way more in favor of government transparency and us being able to just have but like a breakdown how of how things are being spent. can exercise their powers by knowing what's happening. Earlier you had mentioned the release of prisoners. Do you think that an unintended consequence of the prison system being what it is could have resulted in crime going up for a short time or at all, possibly? Wait, so... Are you... Are you uh, we, we covered the... the uh, the emergency order to oh, yeah, yeah. Emergency yeah. Order. that's what it is yeah do and i think that there was a rising do, do, do you crime? think that there was a rising would you expect that there was a rising crime as reported by the sheriff's office too right, right. no no yeah really no yeah okay no. why is that why do well why do i think there wasn't yes. i mean there is no data really to um there is no data to substantiate that claim that there mm -hmm. was quote a rise in crime that they'll, they'll focus on a few specific things when making that argument so like Maybe there was a rise in retail theft, um, but there was a decrease in homicide. Again, that's not that's not exactly what they said. I need to look again at okay, what were their exact justifications? Um, but no, I, I don't think. And for also other reasons, like it it was lockdown, and so you know it was lockdown when the emergency bail order was in effect. And um, I think that during that period of time, there was there were less arrests. Um, also when we think of like crime data, we're actually only, again, ha relying upon arrest data, which is at its core racially biased. Um, and it, again, so many people are arrested for not doing anything wrong. I don't disagree with that at all. And, and yeah. so if, though, if that's the data that we're relying upon to say there's a quote rise in crime, then we're re relying upon data that's inherently racially biased that's inherently biased because it's collected by the sheriff's department that has a financial incentive in reporting high rates of crime. So like we don't have we need non-sheriff's department data that that shows, you know, okay, actually like and again though, how do you actually quantify this? You know, if it's not coming from arrest rates, if it's not coming from prosecution rates, which again are inherently racially biased mm -hmm. um, and maintained and collected by the sheriff's department. So part of the alternative vision uh, to policing is uh, a collection of big data on what people are doing uh, that indicates that they would need help from the state mm. um, or from the communities. No. Uh, That's just a yeah. surveillance yeah. state. Yeah, hell no. Right? Hell no yeah. to that. Yeah. yeah, no no predictive policing, <laughs> no. No, no surveillance, no collection of big data um, because that may be used, that may be like, on the face said, you know, okay, this is in order to not arrest people, it's so we can intervene. But again, who who has access to that data? Who's controlling that data? Who's doing the intervention? You mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. Um also who who's to use an algorithm to say whether or not somebody needs mental health care, you know? Yeah, no, that's a, a little shady to say at the least. Well Just you need uh, you need some great. sort of uh, you know, uh large scale studies to determine that uh alternatives to policing are leading to a reduction in harms to society, mm -hmm. right? So you need to quantify that in some way. Yeah, well, 
you can look to models such as I believe it's in Denver. It's called Denver Star. It's it's alternative crisis response. So mm-hmm. a lot of people who have been murdered by the sheriff's department here in LA County, they were experiencing a mental health crisis and the cops were called and they were killed as a result of this. And in Denver, they have this what's called an alternative crisis response model that does not involve law enforcement. So an individual who is experiencing a mental health crisis can, someone who's around them can call STAR. And this community-based model will come and support, and again, there's clinicians there, social workers, it's not just a, you know, ra- random individuals who are supporting with this intervention. And it's I think it's shown that there has been a reduction in police violence against communities and also a reduction in people experiencing mental health issues, a reduction in their con- contact with the criminal legal system. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Where can I find those statistics? Denver yeah. Star. Denver Google, Star. yeah, Denver Star program. Yeah. yeah, we could we could bring that up with with Gascon and see what. Yeah, what he's I, I think about there. L.A. County is trying to implement alternative crisis response models. Definitely, I think that um, we need to invest. The county needs to invest in those, and the county needs to invest in models that aren't co-response models. So a lot of people invest, or a lot of counties are interested in co-response models, where it's you know mental health clinicians co-responding with law enforcement. No, law enforcement needs to be taken out of the equation for real and and so i think la county needs to follow the lead of of cities like denver um in in implementing alternative crisis response models that don't involve law enforcement and invest in those yeah i'll look at that later but i found the website oh good very interesting we have a link tree where it has a bunch of different stuff you can sign up for justice la newsletter there you can sign up for the virtual action, which is the virtual way that we organize. And our link tree has links to all of the um, all of our social media stuff and any recent press releases or statements we put out. And that's link tree slash JLA now. And it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash J-L-A now. Yeah. Then you can follow our work there. <laughs>